Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Good day, everybody. This is uh, Dr. Casey Patrick. We're here with the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Today we have a special guest that is uh, uh, close to both Dr. Dixon and I. Dr. Dixon, take it away and introduce our guest. All right. Thanks, Casey. Uh, this morning we have Dr. Jerry Snow. Jerry's a medical toxicologist from Banner University in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, Phoenix, Arizona. See, it's a good thing that we're taping this, Jerry, because we just do it over and over and over until we get it right. So Dr. Snow is a medical toxicologist uh, from Phoenix, Arizona, and one of our uh, colleagues from Indiana University. Uh, so welcome, Dr. Snow. Great. Glad to be here, Rob. Awesome. Hey, you know, I was, I was driving in this morning listening to uh, an, a piece on opiates, a podcast on opiates on NPR when I was driving in this morning. This has really, really been out there in the lay press. Um, before we get kind of started, and I don't want to get too deep on the weeds on where we're going with this as, as a nation, um, a little bit of our background on how we got involved in it. About, about a year ago, we had some law enforcement guys come to Casey and I and the team and with concerns about these synthetic opiates that were showing up in the Houston region. Uh, and they were concerned for uh, toxicity in the first responders and how we were going to respond to it. So can you give us a little background on the different potencies and this, specifically the synthetics that you're seeing out there and what your take is on uh, the risk to first responders? Sure, absolutely. Um, so fentanyl's been around for, for many, many, many decades now. I mean, it was developed in the 1960s and it was pretty widespread, initially used in, in Europe um, pretty widely and then carried over here and was FDA approved in the United States. And so it's, it's been in use for, for many decades now. Um, and initially, fentanyl, when it came to abuse or misuse, was really only really hospital-based healthcare providers. So people who had access to it from, from the operating room, such as anesthesiology, surgeons, um, and other people's kind of working in that theater. Um, and then over the decades, every once in a while, there may be a small outbreak of some fentanyl and or fentanyl analogs. There was small outbreaks even going back to like 1979, 1980, um, for instance, in Southern California involving like acetylfentanyl, which is a, a fentanyl analog. And we know most about fentanyl, obviously. It's the pharmaceutical that's been most widely used. It's been most widely studied. And so what you'll often see quoted is that, you know, fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine, for instance. Um, some of the analogs like acetylfentanyl is said to be about 15 times more potent than morphine. So some of these things are less potent. Some of these are said to be more potent than fentanyl. But unfortunately, you know, there are dozens of these analogs out there, and a lot of them have never really been studied. So we really can't comment on the potency, relate, you know, in comparison to morphine or fentanyl because we just don't have that data. One of the things that gets thrown around a lot is, especially by the the press, is they really talk about carfentanil, and it's 10,000 more times more potent than morphine. And really that's, you know, you hear about carfentanil because it's quote, you know, the elephant tranquilizer. You know, it is used in veterinary medicine. It is not used um, in humans at all, um, except for when it's abused. Um, and it is a very potent um, opioid because it is used, like I said, to uh, tranquilize very large, large animals. But this, this number of 10,000 times more potent than morphine really comes from like some rat studies. It's never really been studied 
um, in humans. So it's really hard to say that that's actually true to that degree. Yes, it probably is more potent than fentanyl, but I think it's it's a bit of a stretch to say it's 10,000 more right, times right. more potent than morphine. But there are just as many analogs out there that we really don't have any data on as far as their strength um, or potency compared to fentanyl or morphine, which, like I said, have been widely used for many, many years and, and very well studied. Where, where are these things coming from, Jerry? Are people making these things in their garage or uh, are these just like an extra little side chain on the regular fentanyl cookbook? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so this goes back, you know, there was a, there's a guy, a gentleman, I believe he was actually um, in Oklahoma who was credited for making the first fentanyl clandestine lab in the United States. And there was an outbreak, I think I believe this was in the early 1990s and um, several hundred people um, apparently died due to his manufacturing of fentanyl. And this, this guy, interestingly enough, did not even have a college degree or anything. He was kind of a, uh, uh, you know, high school smart kid um, who grew up and kind of had an interest in chemistry, like, you know, won the science fair in high school, but actually taught himself just by going to the library and learning the method. And he was actually able to synthesize fentanyl. But once that lab got shut down, there wasn't much, production of fentanyl say in the United States and what we know now is is the vast majority of fentanyl actually is coming from China and so a lot of the fentanyl analogs as well so and this comes into the United States by really two different routes one of which is primarily through Mexico so either fentanyl powder or fentanyl analogs are shipped into Mexico and then they are doing a couple different things with it one they'll just mix it with heroin and then transport that to the United States. And then they're also manufacturing counterfeit pills. Like for a specific example, that would be like the production of an M30 pill, which is really supposed to be um, 30 milligram oxycodone. And um, we've had a number of deaths here, even in um, the Phoenix area from these M30s. And Rob, they look identical. I mean, I cannot tell them apart from a traditional pharmaceutical M30 pill um, versus these you know, these counterfeit pills. So, and interestingly enough, you can buy the press, you can buy the pill stamps right off of like eBay. And these pill presses can put out like 5,000 pills an hour. And so they will actually manufacture these pills. And there's been seizures of pills all over the country, numbering in the thousands. Like law enforcement will seize like, you know, five or 10,000 pills in a, in a given bus sometimes with these. So, that's amazing. I, I think we read a case series from uh, Ohio, wasn't it, Casey, up in the uh, in the Ohio Valley of, uh, you know, seven or eight patients that all had uh, severe toxicity, severe opiate toxicity. Many of them died. Many of them ended up on, on prolonged ICU care and had bad outcomes. And they all had, I believe it was hydrocodone or oxycodone type pills. And when they checked the mm-hmm. pills, they were all synthetic analog. Yeah. So the kids just yeah. don't know what they're getting. Everything that I've read in the lay press about these you know these episodes they don't really even know clearly why the the dealers and the manufacturers are doing this it doesn't make a whole lot of common yeah. sense right if you're delivering domino's right. pizza with with poison in it you're killing right. your customers yeah why do you want right. to kill the yeah. host yeah right so i think two things come up with that is because and as you can imagine you know fentanyl a lot of these analogs they're they're made from chemicals it's a synthetic process so if you get these and you can get them fairly cheaply as opposed to growing opium, you know, growing the poppy uh, and processing it to produce heroin, that's a much more 
actually expensive and time-consuming process. While, for instance, you know, you can find some literature out there that says you can buy a kilo of fentanyl, say for $3,000, and then you can make a million pills by putting a milligram of that in each pill. And then you can sell those pills for 10 to 20 bucks a piece. So off one kilo of fentanyl, you could make 10 to $20 million. So I think that profit- That answers the question. Into, There's right, the answer. I think profit's a big part of it. And then there, even when they had these smaller outbreaks decades ago, um, going back to like the 80s and the 90s, when addicts found out like, oh man, you know, this dealer has this really potent stuff. So whether it was like China White or Tango and Cash, these are some of the, you know, the street names of these ultra potent, you know, what people thought was ultra potent um, heroin. Um, but obviously it was, you know, fentanyl or a fentanyl analog. So lots of people die, but then some people were actually seek, some addicts would actually seek that out because it was such a potent opioid. Yeah. So, so pivoting back to like the potency of these things, Jerry, specifically for our first responders, Talk about the risk a little bit when these uh, our law enforcement come in contact with these things. They search through people's pockets and touch their baggies of drugs and their tablets and things sure. like that. Talk to us about the potency and the risk and and uh, uh, precautions and security measures you would you would advise. Sure, you know, well, this has really become a big issue over the last you know two or three years, and unfortunately, there's a couple of different organizations that have kind of weighed in on this topic and came out with statements specifically um, looking at you know, occupational safety, especially involving police officers and other first responders and so forth. And one of those organizations is, is National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. Um, another statement came from the American College of Medical Toxicology in, conduction, in conjunction, excuse me, <clears throat> with the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. And I think first and foremost, it's important uh, that we just get out there that the risk of toxicity from dermal contact from fentanyl or, or fentanyl analogs is low and is very unlikely um, to result in clinically significant opioid toxicity. Fire that one more about, time, Jerry. That's I think that's the key to the there you uh, go. Yeah, fire yeah, that sure. one off one more time. Again, fentanyl or fentanyl analogs, dermal contact is very low risk and very unlikely to result in any clinical significant opioid toxicity. You know, unless you were like bathed in large amounts of highly concentrated powder over an extended period of time. You know, brief contact with fentanyl or its analogs should not lead to toxic effects. That could happen, Jerry. You did see Scarface, correct? Right, yeah. So, like, if you bathed yourself <laughs> you could, in you it. You could bathe yourself in it. I'm just saying. It right, could happen. Right. It, if it happened, it could happen. You know, it could happen. Um, but, you know, if you had visible powder on your person and you promptly remove it, that would be exceedingly unlikely to cause any type of toxicity. Okay. So, if for some reason... I came in contact. Let's say I was examining a patient in the emergency department and I got an unknown powdered substance um, on my person. What I would do is I would just promptly walk over to the sink. I would wash my hands with soap and water and just remove it. And if I got it under my clothes and I would, you know, take my, my top off or change my pants and I would, you know, make sure that I didn't have any on my skin and, and go on my way. When you look at, you know, the dermal exposure, like say, for instance, specifically, look at the fentanyl patch. The fentanyl patch is specifically designed to administer through the skin um, fentanyl, you know, for analgesic purposes. I mean, it's designed to do that. These powders are not designed to do that. And so even fentanyl patches, it takes many minutes, like 15 minutes, even to get a really measurable uh, 
dose or concentration, you know, uh, within the body. So having these powders on your on yourself for a couple minutes before washing them off is not going to cause you to get sick. You're not going to simply brush this off your shirt and become, you know, atmic and unresponsive from that standpoint. Yeah. So good PPM um, brushing, good absolutely. Uh, practice brushing it off, washing hands, using your uh, uh, personal protective equipment, your gloves, a, a mask, or something like that. If you get you yeah. know, something, it could be aerosol aerosolized like a drug lab or where they're manufacturing yeah. and stuff. Yeah, that, that was definitely a point that I was going to bring up. I mean, you know, I am much more concerned about the potential for like inhalation or mucous membrane contact or ingestion. So obviously, you know, you it wouldn't be like Miami Vice where you're sticking your fingers down in some powder and tasting it to see what drug you think it is. You know, I would never advise that or anything like that. And obviously, if you're in a situation, like you said, a manufacturing area, one of these pill mills where they're, they're manufacturing the pills and there's a large amount of powder, if it's sitting on a counter or if it's in a container, you know, the vapor pressure of fentanyl is extremely low. You're not going to get ill by being in proximity of it. Otherwise, we would be sick just being around it within the emergency department or actually having it, you know, um, with, within EMS and so forth. So that is not a concern. However, if the powder, like you mentioned, was aerosolized, you inhale it. Yeah. I mean, the bioavailability would be significantly higher than it would be through the skin. So the recommendations would be exactly what you mentioned, Rob, you know, make sure you wear your gloves. If you come in contact and had, you know, visible contamination of your skin, just promptly wash it off with soap and water. Do not touch your eyes. Don't get this in your nose or mouth. But you also want to be careful, too, not to, like, abrade the skin. You don't want to wash your skin to the point where you're actually causing breakdown or injury to the skin. Another recommendation I would make would be to not use hand sanitizers. So don't use alcohol-based hand sanitizers because, theoretically, they could actually increase absorption. Um, so, obviously, that would be something you, you don't want to do. So we've seen, um, you know, the the lay press clips um, on and off here for the past couple years of, of – you know, first responders, police, detectives in these seizure situations um, of, you know, large quantities of these synthetic opioids um, have, quote unquote, symptoms, dizziness, nausea, you know, exposure type symptoms. And, you know, from from our look at these a little cl more closely, it seems that none of these symptoms, quote unquote, have been really attributable to true, uh, you know, fentanyl, carfentanyl exposure, probably been a little more anxiety and and, and hysteria. Would, would you agree with that, Jerry? Yeah, I would. And, you know, the, uh, the American College of Medical Toxicology specifically commented in their statement as well how, you know, none of these people had the classic symptoms that we look for, right? So like pinpoint pupils, CNS and respiratory depression, a lot of vague things, like you said, weakness. Uh, I remember uh, particular uh, one guy was, I felt like my body was shutting down. Just, you know, a lot of the symptoms are very vague and not what we look for, classic opioid toxidrome. They're not things that you administer naloxone for. Um, and there have been numerous cases of like people exposed to a powder and they're giving each other naloxone. When under normal circumstances, if you were evaluating a patient and they were like, I feel a little weak and dizzy, they were awake and talking, oxygenating and ventilating fine, you probably wouldn't administer that person naloxone. So good, good common sense is uh, is going to be be a big player here in recognition of the classic, you know, opiate opioid overdose symptoms. Um, Absolutely, providers can take that take that to the bank. So when we when we think about these from a pre-hospital perspective, I think you know the first point that, that we've been discussing the, you know, the exposure um, risk for the provider is is vitally important to our listeners. But I think the other sort of uh, 
path we have to take is, is, you know, how to treat the patients that are exposed to these from the standpoint of overdose. Um, and, you know, classic heroin being, being the one that we're all very familiar with. Um, but when we think about the synthetic opioids, fentanyl, you know, being the, being the major player, um, you know, what are some of the differences paramedics might see as opposed to classic heroin, Terry? Well, I, I don't think you're going to see a whole lot that, the, the there's no major difference as far as the classic toxidrome that you're going to be looking for. So you're, again, meiosis, pinpoint pupils, CNS and respiratory depression, because initially when you're evaluating this patient, the importance of recognizing that toxidrome is what's most important. And you're not going to come up on the patient and say, oh, this is a fentanyl. You know, I mean, it's going to look like an opioid overdose. So, I mean, you may not initially know. Now, anecdotally, there are some reports that I've heard from EMS that they feel like since this has been going on over the last couple of years and there's been more fentanyl and fentanyl analogs available, they feel like they're having to use more or higher doses of naloxone. Um, and I've had more than one you know, group of uh, EMS providers tell me that, but this has never been com confirmed in human trials. In other words, there's never been a trial looking at the reversal of these of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs and saying, okay, how much does this require? And when they've done animal studies on this, it looks like they respond similarly. Yeah, can you comment on that? You know, that's a common question that Casey and I get from our providers and other providers in the region, uh, Jerry, is, you know, uh, A, how much do I use and when do I quit? You know, when we were trained, you gave, you know, 0.2 to 2 to maybe 4, and if it didn't work, then you ticked it off the list. It, you didn't, okay, it's probably not an opiate. At what point, what level these days with the synthetics do you think that that dose where you say it's not going to reverse, it's not going to work, um, what dose well, is that? And, and, uh, and follow it up with, what about in cardiac arrest? Is there any benefit in folks that are, frankly, in cardiac arrest? Do you see any evidence that naloxone uh, might be helpful for these people? Yeah, those are, those are some great questions, Rob. I, I think – First and foremost, I'll say that, you know, there's very little evidence or, or information out there on the reversal of the fentanyl analogs per se. Um, I go back again to, to using to say that, you know, if a patient has, hasn't responded by the time that they've gotten a total of 10 milligrams naloxone, it's probably unlikely to be of additional benefit, you know, if you've seen, you know, no response um, at all. I think the, you know, the perfect dose or the most appropriate dose is, what gets a person back to oxygenating and ventilating. And, you know, and obviously responders shouldn't underestimate the value of a, a ba uh, bag valve mask and, you know, in advanced airway uh, care if, if needed. Uh, I will say that, you know, I would start at, at a lower dose, obviously, because if you can avoid putting a patient through withdrawal, that, that would be great. Um, but obviously, you know, when a person's blue, and atmic and unresponsive, uh, it's, I think it's, it's hard to convince a lot of people to start at a very, very low dose um, from that standpoint. But, but I would say I would give a patient up to at least 10 milligrams before I dismissed it um, and moved on from something else. But once you get to that dose, uh, there's, if, it, if an opioid is involved, there's probably some other co-ingestant um, or other substance such as benzodiazepines or possibly even you know, ethanol from that standpoint. Right, right. Many of these are, are combined players. They, they rarely uh, present just by themselves. Traveling packs. Traveling packs, yeah, I like that. So, Jerry, where do you see this going in five years? You know, this crisis and, you know, we're right on the 
beginning cusp of this, I think. I think it's likely going to get worse before it gets better because, as you said earlier in the in the show, there's a tremendous amount of profit to be made here. Whenever there's profit to be made, there's folks out there that are going to make it. Where do you where do you see um, the therapy uh, research and therapy going, and where do you see kind of the opiate crisis going? Well, unfortunately, Rob, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's interesting if you if you look back. Um, opioid prescribing actually peaked in 2010. Um, the opioid epidemic has only gotten worse uh, since that time. And when, when you look at deaths, um, in large part, the last couple of years from fentanyl and, and its analogs have been the biggest contributor to the deaths that, um, that we're seeing. And, and deaths are still on the rise. I mean, if you look back, going back to like 2002, uh, you take all drug deaths, there were probably around 35, 40,000. And when you look now at 2017, or even at the data from 2016, we were over 60,000 deaths. Now, that's all drug deaths. But when you look at the biggest contributor to those deaths, it's opioids. I mean, fentanyl, fentanyl analogs in 2015 probably killed 20,000 people in and of themselves. And it's, the, the curve of that line is very steep um, when it comes to that. So unfortunately, I, I, I agree with you that I think this is a crisis that's going to continue to get worse before it gets better. I think people are still going to continue to, to work on making additional analogs to try to stay ahead of the DEA and ahead of the game. Um, because as you said, there's just so much money to be involved. And as a whole, uh, unfortunately, I feel like we've been more reactive and not proactive, you know, concerning this health crisis. And uh, I know we're, we're really trying to scramble um, to get back ahead of this um, from where we're starting. Um, from an EMS standpoint specifically, I think people just need to keep doing what they've been doing for a number of years and be comfortable with it because they know how to recognize the opioid toxidrome. They know how to treat it. They don't need to change their management. They just need to be wise and use common sense precautions as we talked about going forward. And because who knows what we can anticipate as far as, you know, newer agents coming onto the street over the next few years. But I, I do expect that there will just be, you know, a continuing new source um, of these drugs coming forward. I think that's a great spot to wrap it up, Jerry. And we'll, we look to you guys, especially in the tox field, to, you know, sort of keep us abreast of what the new players are going to be because you guys see them first and they concentrate yeah. in, into your care. So right. we're, we're, yeah. you're not sending Casey and I a bill for every time we, we dial you up right. for a consult. Are you, Jerry, your uh, bill's not in the mail? I'm keeping a list, but I'm keeping it to myself. <laughs> you know what I, uh, I will say it's, it's often regional too. So obviously some states have been hit a lot harder. Arizona has been fairly fortunate as, as opposed to like Ohio, Massachusetts, West Virginia. I mean, if you look at a map, those places have had tremendously more number of reported deaths um, than say that we have here. And we've had a, all states have had a, you know, a share of deaths, don't get me wrong, but some states have definitely been hit harder by the opioid epidemic than others. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up on that, Jerry. We really appreciate you being on the show today and sharing your expertise on the on the opiate crisis and, and kind of the EMS response to it. Yeah. Thanks, Jerry. And uh, for all, yeah. the, all the listeners out there, we'll catch you again next time. Thanks. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.